Welcome to The Pilgrim Soul, a podcast about the journey of faith in the world of today. I'm your host, Adriana. And I'm Sophia. And we're here to talk to you today about radical Christian hospitality. Yeah, I'm so excited about this topic. I actually, for the past month, have been hosted by a friend of mine while I'm visiting my parents in South Bend. So I've been thinking a lot about hospitality and what a gift it is both to be hosted and to host other people. Yeah, especially during the pandemic, I think it's a really poignant topic where many people are isolating and find themselves thinking that they're unable to practice hospitality right now. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking we could start our conversation by talking about what hospitality is, because I don't think it's quite obvious, at least not to me, uh, what constitutes hospitality. Like I tend to think of it in a pretty narrow sense of always, you know, welcoming somebody into your home, um, whether for a meal or to spend the night. And that is part of hospitality, but there is sort of a more expansive definition, I think, that could help us see where hospitality shows up in other places in our life. Yeah, I agree. I think you could definitely define hospitality under those narrow terms, but really in Christian hospitality, we're invited to thicken it up a bit and recognize hospitality as an access point to Christ, that it's always Christ whom we host and receive. And we're not only invited to generously welcome others into our homes, but also there's just this real active aspect of hospitality where we're going out and searching for and finding ways to welcome others, especially those living on the margins. Mm -hmm. I love those two adjectives that you put before hospitality there, the radical and the Christian, because I think that while it may seem that adding adjectives to the front of it kind of narrows the category of what we're talking about, I think actually it opens it up. The radicality, it points us to the fact that no one is off limits and no form is off limits for how this welcome and this encounter is to take place in our life. As you mentioned, it's precisely those people who are on the margins who the Lord wants us to welcome. Those experiencing socioeconomic disadvantage and homelessness, those with different abilities who speak different languages or have different backgrounds. So that's the radicality. And the Christian specifies that it is Christ whom we're seeking in this act. So it's not just the person in front of us who we're welcoming, but Christ himself. So I think that's a beautiful, a beautiful place to start. Yeah, even that language of radicality makes me think of the Dorothy Day quote we've been talking about. She says, if we hadn't got Christ's own word for it, it would seem raving lunacy to believe that if I offer a bed and food and hospitality, my guest is Christ. And I think that's a beautiful starting point. Totally. Yeah, I was thinking about how desensitized I am because it's true. Like the idea that when you're welcoming someone into your home or into your life or into your heart, that the person who you're welcoming is actually God-made man is radical. It is lunacy if you just look in human terms, especially when the person that you're welcoming is someone who maybe you don't like personally or, you know, isn't similar to you or it's difficult for you to get along with them. It's lunacy to think that that person is God, if not for the words of Christ himself, who tells us in Matthew's gospel, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Precisely whenever we do this for one of the least of our brothers and sisters, we do it for him. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I just think in my own practical life, how unwilling I am, I suppose, especially for people that I might not like to give my all and give my best. Yeah. 
And that really strikes me that, that I've decided at that moment that I'm not giving Christ my all or Christ my best. Yeah, that's profound. And I like that it's Dorothy Day who's the one who said that because she's such an exemplar in my mind in the lives of so many people of hospitality that part of me is just tempted to think like, oh, she must have just had a natural gift for it and it must have been easy for her to love people who were so different, easy for her to give of herself in this way that you're talking about. But I think her reflection makes it really clear that actually this is something she had to practice and something to beg for. So that's a real reason for hope as we're starting out this episode that maybe we can talk about some things that educate us and the people who are listening to this podcast to maybe take a few steps towards the kind of hospitality that she practiced, precisely because it is a practice and not just something that you come automatically with or without. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think there's a tendency to sentimentalize all the saints. And I think that's why Dorothy Day herself said she didn't want to be a saint, Mm -hmm. a canonized saint, at least. And she, in a lot of her reflections, writes about the ugliness of her life, the ugliness of working in poverty, and that it wasn't all welcoming strangers in off the street and coming together in these healing moments of prayer and love that there's a real suffering to this calling and a living experience of the cross, but that she still manages to write to all of us these really inspiring words that it's Christ that we seek and it's Christ that we host. Mm -hmm. So I thought it'd be helpful if we just really broke down components of hospitality. Absolutely. So I think the first thing that comes to mind when I think of hospitality is the person who you're welcoming, whether it's a stranger or a friend, but the person to whom you extend this love that Christ asks us to show. In my life, it doesn't come naturally to view everyone I come across as someone that I can welcome into my life. So it's provocative for me to think that hospitality is a virtue that we can and should direct towards everyone, precisely because it's rooted in their dignity as children of God. And this is something that every human being possesses. Yeah, it reminds me of the Sisters of Life when they train their co-workers for life, um, which is kind of their equivalent to a third order. They always start with the principle of encountering another person as gift, and you have to first delight in the other as gift. And that's a recognition of their dignity, exactly what you're saying. But how countercultural that is to enter into a conversation, recognizing that the other is gift requires real vulnerability without any presuppositions right? and any ulterior motivations. It demands like a real freedom before the other person that they can say anything to you and you have no idea what they're going to say. And I think there's a real vulnerability there. I agree. I think precisely because hospitality is an invitation and an opening and a welcome, it's something that places you at the mercy of the other person. And so it requires that you trust them or trust that God is there working through that person. It requires that you can listen to that person and attend to their needs and whatever they might be bringing to the encounter. And especially when we're talking about hospitality within your own home or within your heart, this is something that is a risk. Like you were talking about, it's vulnerability because it places something that is so precious to you actually in the hands of the person who you're welcoming. Yeah, exactly. And I love what you're saying about it places you at the mercy of the other. 
both exteriorly and interiorly. And we've talked about that as two components of hospitality, just the exterior place in which you're welcoming someone, but also interiorly, how is your heart? Are you in a space of interior freedom where you can be totally open to the other? And it strikes me that in terms of interior hospitality, that it becomes increasingly difficult to do this with those that we're in real companionships with. Hmm. Because at that point, I think we can tend to want to make ourselves known even more and lose the habit of listening and truly just being open to the other as other and allowing them to be an irreducible mystery before us. That is perhaps easier with someone we meet once, but maybe more difficult with our closest friends or our spouse, but still something that's asked of us. It's a challenge for me to reflect on the fact that I'm actually called to practice hospitality most within my family, within the walls of my home and with people who I've traveled such a long path with already. But it's true. Yeah, it's true. And to your point about interiority, I think that it's almost more important to start with the interior space with which you would welcome someone. Because actually, if you have a heart that is so full of peace and desire to love the person in front of you, it's going to overflow into an external form of hospitality. And at least in my experience, I don't have a home of my own. And so traditional forms of hospitality for me, especially in times of pandemic, are impossible. I can't have people come stay with me. But I find that especially when I have powerful experiences in prayer or in relationship that remind me of how deeply God loves me, this begs to be shown to other people, both people that I don't know on the street, but also my friends in Cambridge. And so I think that when we're talking about spaces into which you welcome someone, it's almost that there's an ordering here that first you have to attend to the interior space. And then secondly, to find an exterior form that this outpouring of love can show itself in. Yeah. And on that note, I also think there's a tendency to think of hospitality as helping those less fortunate than us. And there is a temptation to power dynamics in that situation Hmm. where the person hosting becomes less aware of his or her own need and her dependence. Mm -hmm. And in terms of an interior space, It's because we first recognize our own need and our own dependence for God that we're able to practice hospitality. And we see that in Jesus himself, where he requests our hospitality as an infant, as an adult over and over again. He rarely has a place to stay and is always at the generosity of his hosts. Christ himself, who's the king. Mm -hmm. That's an essential correction or clarification there. And one that, again, does not come naturally to me. But I think that Father Giussani and the movement of communion liberation really has opened my eyes to this fact that it has to be my need that drives me to perform acts of charity for others. That it's only sustainable, it's only true, it's only good if it comes from a recognition that I depend on others and ultimately on God for every single thing that I have and am. And I actually need the people around me to reawaken me to that dependence on God. Under this light, when we have these gestures of hospitality, this opening of our heart, this opening of our home, it's an expression of our heart's desire and thirst for Christ. And when this person enters into our heart or our home, 
they're actually bringing Christ into it. So going back to your point about the power dynamic, it's precisely not a covering over of the needs of the host, but a reawakening of them that should be the outcome of a moment of hospitality, if that makes sense. Yeah, I love what you're saying that your practice of depending on others reawakens you to your dependence on God and recognizing that in the act of hospitality and the mutuality of dependence as necessary for our salvation. And I think that's a major corrective to the modern conception of hospitality and probably even a lot of Christian conceptions of hospitality. Mm-hmm. A correction that's so fruitful, at least in my life, moments of hospitality, whether it's going to a nursing home weekly just to sing songs with the residents there or other forms of encounter, it's really easy for that to become burdensome when I start looking at it through this transactional lens. Like if I lose touch with my own need and my search for Christ in those people who I'm welcoming to my heart or to my home, it's really easy for this gesture to just harden into something that I have to or should do. And then from there, it just becomes a burden. Yeah, that reminds me of that Clairvaux quote we were discussing, don't try to be more generous than God. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. Which is so good. And I can see that so clearly in my own false attempts at hospitality when I practice them out of duty rather than love that I do find them emptying. And I find them work in a way that God's not asking me to. That Clairvaux quote, you're right, is perfect for this because what he's describing there is this image of being a channel versus being a reservoir and the false notion that you can give more if you're a channel of God's love rather than being a reservoir that soaks up everything that Christ wants to pour into your heart. And I really agree with you. There's such an emphasis on giving, acting, working to achieve some measurable change that we lose touch with this fact that in the first place, what we need is to receive God's love for us. And if we don't have a reservoir that's filled with that, there's going to be a drought and we're not going to be able to be a channel of that love for other people. So I think we've identified a couple of ways in which hospitality can fall short through a false approach or a false step. Are there any other distortions of hospitality that come to mind for you? Yeah, I don't know if I would say this is a distortion of hospitality, but perhaps a component that isn't often recognized is the active searching out, like we mentioned at the beginning, and our Christian responsibility to look for ways to open our homes and hearts to others. Mm -hmm. Because we do live in a world where it's easy to ignore these responsibilities for others. I think of, for instance, a theology professor of mine at Notre Dame who came into class one day sort of frazzled and late and apologized to his class because he said he and his wife had unexpectedly received a call from an adoption agency that they had worked with asking if they would be willing to adopt another child and that he and his wife had accepted. Now, obviously, like, this was a beautiful, free choice of theirs to love this child who needed a home. But in some sense, it reflects the responsibility that we all have towards those who are in need of shelter and clothing and food and in need of the warmth of love. When we emphasize the fact that it's a free act of our will, we don't ever want to lose sight of the fact that it's also a responsibility that Christ asks us to undertake, that those two things go together rather than apart. 
Yeah, it strikes me that we often think of hosting in our free time rather than as something that's really asked of us. Um, It makes me think of all of the meaningful ministries that have popped up in the pandemic. I've seen so many opportunities to still care for those living in assisted living facilities by becoming phone buddies with them. Oh, yeah. Writing letters and people who are otherwise outside of our everyday experience and we don't we don't have to see. And I think that speaks to the active role that we have to go out of our way to really encounter people, particularly the ones living on the margins. Yeah. And to go back to our previous point, I think that this ability to go out to others is always rooted in your own recognition of the fact that you are in need of others. Yeah, Sophia, I love what you were saying about how the transactional nature of our economy has distorted your own understanding of relationship and hospitality and was wondering if you can explore that more. Sure, yeah. To go back to what I started with, I have been staying with a friend here in South Bend for a month and have really discovered how much God had in store for me in very concrete acts of dependence on her and her welcome of me. But I was very close to not even asking her if I could stay in her basement for a month. Because to be quite honest, it would have been easier for her and for me if I just booked an Airbnb. And engaged in this transactional exchange with a stranger, whereby I didn't feel like I was having to burden them, Um, Because I would be compensating them for all of the inconvenience of my stay in their home. So it's really interesting for me to observe that maybe it's the rise of the startup culture or just further back in the roots of the American consciousness. There's this emphasis on self-sufficiency and the creativity of financial means of achieving that self-sufficiency that ultimately isolates us from one another. It makes us less able to receive and depend on each other. Yeah. And I think this prosperity that's come from our capitalist economy really has a temptation to make us unaware of our dependence on God because we're no longer dependent on one another and we don't need to be dependent. And we've come to value self-sufficiency so highly at the expense of dependence that we often look at dependence as a weakness in a negative sense and as a burden, like you're saying. We don't want to burden others as if that's a bad thing anyway. I totally agree. I think it's intimately tied to another feature of our culture, which is this idea of self-creation. Because if you're so fixed on your particular lifestyle practices, you know, whether that's your paleo diet or if you're so set in your ways of how you live, you can't be flexible to receive the good that another person wants to give you. I am really moved always in praying over the gospel that the foxes have their dens and birds of their nest, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He was at the mercy, as you mentioned before, of so many people who supported his ministry. Peter's mother-in-law who cooked him meals, and she, of course, would have wanted to give him the best of what she had. But I'm sure that Christ ended up eating a lot of foods that weren't that tasty or weren't his favorite, and he was sleeping in uncomfortable beds. And if we can't be okay with this discomfort of being obedient to what another person can offer us, of being humble and accepting something that might not be our preference, 
then we lose the opportunity for encounter that's contained within hospitality because we're too fixed and too rigidly attached to the ideas that we have in mind of how we want to live our days. And I think that this too is a very deeply rooted American tendency um, that comes in the way of a culture of hospitality. Yeah, we've become so self-centered in this self-creation culture that we have lost the skill set of being generous with ourselves and of recognizing perhaps even hospitality before us because we're so fixated on our own certain routines that it's much easier to just order on Amazon exactly what we're looking for, have no social interaction, and complete the transaction with an online money exchange. I agree. I think, as is usually the case when we're talking about being countercultural, I think that the family is such a powerful place of education to a different ideal, a different way of living, a different way of treating one another and of engaging with the economy. Um, Would you say that it was in your family that you learned the virtue of hospitality? Yeah, I think so. I think my parents had a really natural tendency towards an open household, particularly my mom growing up in Sri Lanka and my dad on a Native American reservation, that they perhaps more acutely recognized a communitarian way of living. And our home was always very open uh, without even really any consideration. If someone needed a place to stay, they could stay with us. We had multiple friends who lived with us for more than a year growing up. And then another friend in school whose dad was unfortunately incarcerated and my parents became foster parents so that she wouldn't be sent back to Chicago. Wow. And she could finish out high school in our hometown. And I do remember someone saying to me in high school, like, wow, that was so amazing of your parents to do that. And it had sort of never occurred to me that it was amazing. It just seemed like obvious that they would do that Hmm. because she needed a place to stay. And, you know, wouldn't everyone do that? How beautiful that that's the air you were breathing. Yeah, I think it's very much informed my own hopes for our home and also serves as a real provocation for me because I I can see now what a sacrifice it was for them, even though I think they didn't really view it that way. Mm -hmm. What about you? I would have to agree. I think it took very different forms, but my parents were similarly radically hospitable and also quiet about the sacrifices that it entailed because they viewed it as a duty and as a natural outpouring of their love. So most often it was in hosting friends of ours as foreign exchange students or other travelers or students who were visiting and doing everything from giving them rides and cooking them meals to helping them learn English. And I think for me, though, I didn't really understand the value of this until I was on the receiving end. And I was in a place where in high school in particular, but also in college, I was depending on others to host me, to extend the welcome that my parents had shown others when I was growing up. Um, And we joke in CL that you can travel all of Italy without ever booking a hotel because there's someone in CL in every single city who's willing to host you. And it's funny, but it's also so true because you can be treated as family there in a really, in a radical way. Um, And that opens your eyes to 
the way that really all of Christian society could be if we all heeded Christ's words to love one another and to welcome the stranger in his name. That it's real, it's tangible, and it's enough to reshape a culture. I think this is what we should be striving for. Hospitality is not just a privatized act. It's something that's radical and that goes to the roots of the communities that we live in far beyond our own walls. Yeah, I agree with you, particularly that the reception of hospitality made you aware. Because I think I have the same experience. I was thinking about when I first came to Notre Dame, I had become friends with my first year advisor who was just randomly assigned to me. And I ended up getting tonsillitis during my first semester at school. And she let me stay in her home for a whole week while her husband was deployed to Afghanistan. And she had two daughters under the age of three at home and still cared for me. Wow. And throughout the years of college, I ended up having like a spare key to their house um, and was so appreciative of their welcoming me so openly I mean, to even give me a key to their house. Mm -hmm. But I needed that. I still need that openness from others. It was an event that happened to me that I can look upon and remember as this moment of recognizing my true dependence that points to the eternal, but that I need those events to keep happening. And they can only keep happening insofar as I'm willing to let myself be a burden in the way that we're saying Mm -hmm. and also let others be a burden to me. That's beautiful. I'm inspired by her example. And I think it points to the fact that it's really in companionship, in Christian companionship that we learn to practice hospitality, whether that companionship is that of a family or of a parish or of an ecclesial movement It's through relationships with others that we learn to accept the burdens of others as our own and to enable others to carry our burdens as well. I think one of the privileged ways that we see this, though, is through the sacraments. And I know that you mentioned that there's this connection between hospitality and the Eucharist in particular. Is that something you wanted to unpack a little bit for us? Yeah. In the practice of hospitality, we recognize that there's a deeper act going on, that there's a presence beyond the material presence. You know, it's not just the transaction like we were saying Mm -hmm. or the biological reality occurring when we share a meal together. The fact that we're sharing a meal, we're already participating in a deeper reality than just the reality of eating, that we're actually experiencing conviviality and love and friendship. And that's real. And that's a deeper reality than the mere materialistic eating. And it makes the sacraments more understandable and accessible to us because we already have lived experience of sacramental reality every day. We're already accessing the eternal in glimpses. And Christ offers us the seven sacraments as pinnacle moments to experience his grace. But that also includes a whole sacramental economy that we can participate in and glimpse at the ways in which he's making the deeper eternal need present to us. That's a beautiful connection. And I so appreciate what you mentioned about the educative power of the sacraments, that they teach us to see how signs carry more than just their immediate meaning, that there's a transparency that reveals the transcendent. And I think that's so true of hospitality. 
I mean, it makes me think of the road to Emmaus and the story in Luke of the disciples who only recognized Christ in the breaking of the bread. They had traveled all this way with him walking and hearing him expound the scriptures for them, but it was only in the act of breaking the bread gathered around a table that enabled their eyes to recognize him. And afterwards, they realized that it was their hearts burning within them that was the sign of his presence. And I think that this is, at least in my experience, so true of both the sacraments and especially the mass, but also sharing a meal with others. It's a moment that teaches me to see the eternal breaking into the temporal, the transcendent breaking into my everyday life. And even if it's not immediately visible or obvious to me, to learn to recognize in the burning of my own heart, the Holy Spirit at work and Christ's presence before me. So I love the connection there that you drew between hospitality and the sacraments. Yeah, exactly. If we're already engaging in family meals or meals with friends in which we experience a reality deeper than what is materially present, it isn't a leap for us to then approach the sacraments and particularly the Eucharist and recognize that this too reveals something much deeper than what might be materially going on. Mm -hmm. And we ourselves can participate in it spiritually by making our own sacrifices at that time. I particularly find the offertory a really powerful prayer moment for me because I see that as my moment in which I'm making my sacrifice before the altar. At least at my parish, we aren't doing a public offertory anymore during the pandemic, but I still try to bring forward my own sacrifices. And I like to think of the ancient church and that at that moment, you know, we often bring up the host and the wine at that time, but families would have brought up the bread they baked from home and the wine they crushed with their own feet. And the fact that the Eucharist was a participatory sacrifice of both Christ and them was so much more apparent. Yeah. At the offertory, it really is the congregation that's bringing before the altar everything that they have and that they are. And that's what's being offered to God by the priest. The summer that I spent at the Abbey of St. Walburga in Colorado, one of the things that I would do, I think this was my Tuesday afternoon job, was to sort through hosts that they would then, you know, sell to parishes and things. But it was shocking to me to sit in front of a table and for hours just do quality control on unconsecrated hosts because I saw really the ordinariness of what it is that is then turned into the body of Christ. That it's bread that's often, you know, stale or cracked or has marks on it. That's the material. It's not perfect bread that we offer God, but bread that we have baked. And that's what he chooses to make a sacrament of his presence. Yeah, exactly. And Abbot Jeremy always pointed out the why behind bread and wine as opposed to like water and an apple for the Eucharist, because both bread and wine require human participation in order to occur, and they can't just manifest themselves. It's Christ, again, allowing himself to be dependent upon us. In every single Eucharist we celebrate, he can't give his body and blood unless we humans bring forth bread and bring forth wine. Wow. 
It reminds me of something from the rule of St. Benedict, actually, in which he commands his monks to welcome every visitor to the monastery as they would Christ. And some monasteries took this like super far and would actually bow down in front of visitors or pilgrims to the monastery as if they were carrying God himself. Um, And for me, this is so beautiful because just as we were saying about the family, in this way, the religious community can educate all of its members and all the people who see them to see how radical and how true Christ's words are, that whenever we welcome another in his name, we welcome him. And I think this is a real testimony that our culture of self-sufficiency and our transactional economy would really benefit from, from seeing this reverence for the stranger. That makes me think, too, of what you're talking about in terms of the transactional and capitalist economy in which we live. We're losing more and more that sense of covenant and that understanding of giving of ourselves and receiving of the other without any expectation of compensation or contractual benefit. And because we've largely lost that understanding, I think it speaks to how much we need the Eucharist even more to heal us and reawaken us to our beings as being fundamentally relational. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I think especially during a time of pandemic, when understandably we're tempted to see each other as dangerous and hospitality only as a risk which of course, don't get me wrong, is very important to respect the restrictions and to work for public health. But I do fear what long-term consequences it's going to have on a culture of hospitality. If we fear welcoming others into our home, if we fear sharing meals with one another. Yeah, I agree. And hopefully our podcast can be a provocation both for us and for those who listen, a challenge to really focus in 2021, and hopefully as the pandemic ends, on ways in which we can practice hospitality and perhaps beginning with recognizing our own dependence on others. Well put. And we've talked about a lot of different ways that you can practice hospitality, some of which I'm going to try to emphasize on my return to Cambridge. We've talked about cooking meals for others and welcoming them into your home, but we've also talked about welcoming new members of the family through pregnancy and through fostering. We've talked about hosting travelers and caring for their needs, whether that's practical or emotional. We've talked about welcoming those who are experiencing poverty and homelessness and attending to their material and spiritual needs, as well as welcoming those with different abilities or who speak different languages and ensuring that they can access the same spaces and experiences that we can. So there's so many different ways of engaging in hospitality. I think it's beautiful that no matter what our situation in life is, no matter what gifts we have, we can always use them in order to fulfill this invitation of Christ. Yeah. And ultimately, we've talked about companionship and how companionship enables us to live hospitality because we're constantly in relationship and asked to give of ourselves before the other and true companionship recognizes a mutuality and need that is founded in love for one another and not in duty. You know, I, I don't call you or reach out to you out of duty. It's out of my genuine love for our friendship. Right. This is what we're made for. It's actually at the heart of who we are as created in God's image, that we're made for welcoming one another into our hearts and into our homes. I mean, I think it's really significant that this is the image that 
Jesus uses for heaven, right? It's that the Father has a home into which he's going to welcome us, and it has many rooms. And there we're going to have this huge wedding feast, a banquet, literally a shared meal together. And so while on earth we're plagued by all kinds of dangers and sorrows and illnesses that hinder our ability to share life with one another in this way, in heaven it'll be perfect. And so every act of hospitality that we have on earth foreshadows our destiny of eternal union with one another and with God. Yeah, and enables us to carry the weight of glory, as C.S. Lewis says. I think of a professor who would often say that heaven would be sharing dinner with your enemy for the rest of your life. And does that still bring you joy? (laughs) And that speaks to the cross of hospitality that Jesus asks us not to just welcome that obvious stranger in need or our friends, but also our enemies, and to treat them with that same love that we want to give to Christ. And that really strikes me as a need for us to practice right now, because even to me, that sounds difficult. But how am I going to really participate in the glory of heaven and rejoice at the prodigal son that returns home after gambling away the father's money and living among the swine? How am I going to really rejoice in that unless I practice loving people who and loving myself who in no way deserve all of the gifts I'm given? Well put. Well, to that end, I think that what I wanted to suggest for this week's challenge is to prepare a home-cooked meal for someone and, if possible, to eat together. I know, given the pandemic restrictions, this may not be feasible for everyone, but anyone who lives in a household, whether with family or with housemates, can choose to do this for them. Because as we were talking about before, hospitality, it's not like hospitality stops within your family. In fact, that's one of the most important places where we need this as a virtue and as a practice. But if you're like me and you're living alone and don't have a space into which you can welcome others, either practically or because of government regulations, some of the things that I like doing are baking a bunch of desserts or a meal and taking it to a park and inviting friends and just finding more creative ways to be able to share food while acknowledging the practical limits that I have. So that's my challenge for this week is to prepare a home-cooked meal for someone and to eat together, keeping in mind this invitation from Christ to recognize the other as his very self. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful challenge and can be a meaningful way to begin practicing hospitality in 2021. And our media suggestion to go along with that is Babette's Feast, a movie that we both love. It's a Danish... We watched it together, didn't we? Yes, we did. Yeah. A Danish film about a woman who cooks a meal for her companions and enemies, actually. And it's very simple, but very beautiful. Yeah, I love this movie. If you get a chance to watch it, please let us know what you think. And as always, you can find us on... Instagram or our email which is listed in the show notes and we would love to hear from you please subscribe to and review this podcast if you like it know of our prayers for you and you can find us here next week for another episode of The Pilgrim Soul